Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. Today, you'll hear my conversation with Kentucky gubernatorial candidate Adam Edelin. And even if you don't live in Kentucky, you'll want to hear this conversation. Adam is energetic and is so passionate about education, creating new jobs for those who are reeling from the loss of coal employment. He is pro-choice, not taking any PAC money, and is pledging his cabinet will be made up of at least 50% women. I loved speaking with Adam, and I think you'll find him extremely interesting and refreshing. And he is an important reminder that local elections matter. Hey, everybody, this is Adam Edlin in Kentucky, and I prefer my tomorrows to my yesterdays. Sorry, not sorry. I've been doing a lot of research on you. Uh Uh-oh. and I find I find it all very fascinating. I mean, you grew up in Kentucky, and you were the right. son of a tobacco farmer. What was that like? That's right. Uh, it was really hard work. Anybody who tells you that, that they enjoyed being a tobacco farmer's son is a liar. Um, but I had a great dad. I had a great mother. You know, my mom had me when she was 16, Alyssa, and... Uh, I am wow. now a candidate. I'm a candidate for governor um, because the uh, the next rung of opportunity was avail- was available to them. And the problem is, is it's a lot tougher today than it was in the late '70s, early '80s. And that's something people like you and I have to fix. Yeah, I agree with you, um, especially the magnitude of the discrepancy between education on on people that are in. Uh, higher income communities versus the, the children right. in lower income communities, and I know education right. is is a big priority for you. How do you how do you plan on fixing that? Well, we've got to make sure that the next rung on the ladder is available to everybody. And when we when we have uh, an unequal uh, funding of our public school system, when when we have lost uh, those of us who believe in public education, have lost the mantle of reform to those who don't. When education reform is all about uh, vouchers and corporate-owned charters, um, we uh, it makes it difficult for people who are left out to move up, and that's what we've got to work on. So, fully funded education, making sure that our that we're recruiting the best and brightest into the teaching profession, uh, making sure that the next rung on the ladder, be it community and technical education, or higher education, or a liberal arts education, is available to everybody is critical because education is the great equalizer. And what we're doing is we're creating a system of ins and outs. And uh, that's something that is, uh, that's, uh, you know, to me, it just runs against the very nature of what it is to be an American. And certainly we're never going to ensure that everybody has the same outcome, but we, w- but we must work to make sure everybody has the same opportunity. America rose to prominence economically in the world, you know, not just because it had a vast continent, but because it basically educated its children and its workforce better than any other nation. We have believed wholeheartedly in investing the money of the people 
the money of all the people, in the education of the people. That conviction, backed by taxes and backed by dollars, is no accident, for it is the logical application of our faith in democracy. By expanding education, we know the individuals who get more educated will have large returns in income. We would be wealthier, and they'd provide more competition for the elites, and that would tend to reduce inequality. The weakest educational link in our national system lies in those communities which have the lowest taxable value, and therefore the smallest per capita tax receipts, and therefore the lowest teachers' salaries, and the most inadequate buildings and equipment. There is probably a wider divergence today in the standard of education between the richest communities and the poorest communities than there was a century ago. Do you think that that we lost our way on education because of a cultural accepted systemic racism? I think that's been part of it, Alyssa. I think a lot of it has been that um, those of us who have who believe in public education have uh, gone from the offensive to the defensive. And I think Kentucky is ground zero for that. You know, in, in 1990, Kentucky became the first state in the country to declare an entire system of K-12 through education unconstitutional and build, build a system back premised on the belief that all children can learn and learn at high levels. And between, wow. 1990, and between 1990 and 2010, we were tied with North Carolina for the, the biggest improvement in uh, educational outcomes. The problem is, for the last 10 years, progressives, uh, those who, who believe in public education, have ceded the ground of education reform to people who don't believe in it. And that's why we're now fighting over vouchers, and it's why we're fighting over corporate charters, when what we need to be talking about is how do you integrate technology into the classroom, because kids learn differently. And if you don't believe me, give any three-year-old an iPhone. In an age when the world's information is just a click away, it demands that we bring our schools and libraries into the 21st century. We can't be stuck in the 19th century when we're living in a 21st century economy. How do we get teachers on a path in Kentucky to earn at the national average? How do we make the 11th and 12th grades of high school a better passage into whatever it, come, whatever it is that comes next, be it community or, uh, or university-based education? These are the things we need to be talking about, but we're not. And that's because progressives and those who believe that we are better together have to go on the offensive. And that means running on what we're for merely than what we're just opposed to. And we have so much more information now on how children learn. I mean, I'm dyslexic. It completely shaped who I am today uh, for the better and for the worse. You know, I was right. always very insecure about being dyslexic. And we know so much more now. There is no excuse to not cater to every child's development unless we are trying to hold a certain demographic back. And that is the biggest problem I have right now is, you know, even with income inequality, uh, we need to figure out how to get back to a place where everyone has the same opportunity. Right, Alyssa, and that's so important. And and so, you know, Gavin Newsom, who's the governor of California, is dyslexic. Well. And 
and and and you i mean so i'm fascinated like how did it must have been really tough learning scripts as a dyslexic kid the the memorization was easy for me because i have somewhat okay. of a photographic memory it was the wow. reading that was hard right. so so for me like if i had to go in on an audition and you know they give mm-hmm. you sides they give they're called sides they're scenes from the movie or the tv show that they want you to act out in a room i wouldn't be able to just read the sides especially in a high-pressure situation like an audition. So I had to memorize everything. So that part of my brain is very exercised. But, you know, I I look at my children. How do we get back to that place where we're proud of our education system and not completely ashamed? And what responsibility is that on a state level versus a federal level? So it's primarily at the fe- at the state level. You know, it, 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 education tends to be a state issue. But if if America is going to be what it ought to be, uh, particularly in a global economy, we've got to understand that there are no throwaway kids. And Alyssa, I think this is about uh, as much about having aspiration for the future as calling on a, upon uh, those moments in our history when we were we were at our best. You know, the the, the men and women who went and literally saved the world from democracy in World War II. When they came back to America, we said, listen, you, you saved the planet. Um, we're going to send you to college for free. And, and the GI Bill not only helped galvanize and, uh, and grow the, the American middle class in a way we never had, it gave people from places like Kentucky uh, a fighting chance in a changing economy. And, and that represents, I think, the best of American aspiration. In Washington... There were a group of congressmen with long memories who were in the last war. They knew that when a man gets out of the Army or Navy or Marines, he's worried most about a job, an education, and a home. And that's why Congress, led by the President, passed the law. The Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, better known as the G.I. Bill of Rights. I don't know what I would have done if the G.I. Bill had not been there. It established the middle class of people in the United States, because in those days, you were either rich or you were poor. Many of the veterans that used the GI Bill after World War II, they were the first of their families to have ever gone to college. It's not just about uh, sort of the soft skill set of understanding that all kids need to learn and learn at high levels, and that there's this wonderful bit of God-given human potential in all children. It's, it's also understanding that if this country is going to be what it ought to be, and that is something bigger than these silly divides and, and you know, the, the politics of the lowest common denominator that we're having to deal with right now, you know, this is just something that I think ought to be central to our patriotism and calling on states to do the right thing and invest in education and, and recognize that, you know, we have to have conversations about things like class size because everybody with a brain in their head knows that kids learn better when there are fewer of them in the classroom, but we're dealing with this national crisis of of growing class size. I mean, these are things that we've got to address, and it really does help at the state level. And if a if a state like Kentucky can lead on this, Alyssa, think about what a what a, what what potential we have to drive this kind of reform all around the country. I mean, universal pre K. It ought not to be a luxury. It ought to be uh, something that's guaranteed to everyone because we know that the chief indicator of future prison need is the number of third graders who don't read at grade level. And we also know that kids who aren't prepared to go to kindergarten are not going to read at grade level. So when we're giving tax cuts to billionaires and, and we're being screwed by the big banks and literally costing billions of dollars to the taxpayers to bail them out, 
I just refuse to accept the notion that we can't and we can't afford to invest in our most important uh, element of this country, and that's our young people. And, and you know, I know you have children. I have thirteen-year-old twin boys, um, and and watching how they have changed and evolved is extraordinary. And I think I think government in in America and in Kentucky specifically has to recognize that our ability to be what we ought to be is completely married to making sure that each of our kids develop to their fullest ability. And I'm, you know, I'm passionate about this because based on my mother being 16 years old when, you know, she brought me home from the hospital and that my dad was and is a farmer, you know, the only person in Kentucky who's not surprised I'm running for governor is my mom. <laughs> and, you know, that's because, that's because our mothers love us and expect us to do great things. I think we need to take that level of expectation everywhere. And, you know, certainly I'm not a self-made man. I'm a product of my parents skidding their knuckles to make sure I had every opportunity imaginable. And, you know, I'm, I'm, you and I are about the same age. I went to school at a time and a place where college was still affordable. But the minimum wage then was about what it is now. But yet a college tuition is uh, dramatically, it's a multiple of what it was 25 years ago. So, um, you know, we, it's, it's not just about fairness. It's not just about equality. It's about equity. And it's about making sure that people get a shot. And they get as many shots as they're willing to pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and try again. And, you know, I'm, I'm running for governor in a place like Kentucky on that. And I think not only do we have the potential to transform our state, but I think we've got the potential to reinvigorate the whole country because I think the challenge of progressivism is to bring opportunity to the forgotten places. And whether that be a traditionally African-American inner city community, whether it be uh, the mountains of Appalachia or whether it be a, a, a barrio, you know, we, we have to be about making sure opportunity is spread everywhere. And when we do that, this country will realize its true creed. Because of this lack of wealth, we lived in a neighborhood that lacked wealth, and henceforth a school system that lacked wealth. Luckily, however, we struck the educational jackpot in a voluntary desegregation program that buses inner-city kids, black and brown, out to suburban schools, rich and white. At five years old, I had to take an hour-long bus ride to a faraway place to get a better education. At five years old, I thought everyone was just like me. But as I got older, I started noticing things like, how come my neighborhood friends don't have to wake up at five o'clock in the morning and go to a school that's an hour away? How come I'm learning to play the violin while my neighborhood friends don't even have a music class? Why were my neighborhood friends learning and reading material that I had done two to three years prior? Race always plays a part in how the students are perceived and how we perceive as parents our role in that environment, how we interpret what the school says, how the school reacts to the kids and reacts to us as parents. It's always there as an undercurrent. We sit and we keep banging our heads against this term, achievement gap, achievement gap. Is it really that hard to understand why these kids perform well and these kids don't? I mean, really. I think we've got it all wrong. I think we, as Gloria Ladson Billing says, should flip our paradigm and our language and call it what it really is. It's not an achievement gap. It's an education debt. 
prompted you to run for governor now? Was there a, a moment where you said, you know what, I'm ready, let's do this now? You know, Alyssa, there is, um, I have, I've worked as a, uh, in private business, you know, I've had a good career in government. I've had a good career in business. I was the state auditor, which is the elected taxpayer watchdog in Kentucky. I fought corruption. Uh, I actually served as the chief of staff to the, uh, to the governor whose son is my opponent in the primary. Um, so it's, it's interesting how things turn, but it's really my work in renewable energy over the last few years that convinced me that we have to that we have to get moving, not just as a state, as, but as a country. Um, I brought together a coal company in eastern Kentucky uh, with renewable energy engineers to do what will be the largest solar installation in our state by a factor of ten. It will be the first in Appalachia, and we'll produce a hundred megawatts of renewable energy uh, solar on a mountaintop removal site. And we're going to put back to work a whole bunch of out-of-work coal miners in an industry of the future. And I think uh, now is a time and a place where we need leaders who can bridge the divide. And I know that's a big focus of, of your podcast, uh, Alyssa. This is We have to have people who can, who can paint a picture of the future in which everybody feels part of a shared prosperity. And, you know, this is a 700-acre uh, project, 600,000 solar panels. It will be visible from space and a living, breathing example that Kentuckians and people in the forgotten places of this country can build the future rather than be run over by it. And so I just think given how badly our president is dividing us, uh, how badly um, our, our politics in Washington are failing regular people in this country, I just think it's time that, that folks stand up and do the right thing. And I've got an opportunity to lead here, and I'm making the most of it. Across America, more and more coal-fired smokestacks are smoke-free. The power plants beneath them, cold and dark. The mines that once fed them, abandoned. But for the past couple of years, miners and their families let themselves believe that a coal comeback was on the way. And if they remember the tremendous potential of creating millions of jobs in America, just from renewable energy sources, uh, that would be a, a very good uh, counter-argument to those who oppose the concept of global warming being caused by human activity. So I, I think it's very important for this to be given deep consideration by knowledgeable scientists and, and knowledgeable politicians as well. We're in a situation right now, I'd love to bring on a couple more people, but I'm going to hold off a little bit yet until we know what's going to happen. I don't want to hire somebody and then turn around in six months and have to let them go because the rules are going to change on what we can do with installations and how the systems are, are metered. Well, I think, you know, a big issue for me in this country right now is this idea and this reality of forgotten cities. You know, these, right. these places throughout the country where, uh, you know, whether it, whether it be coal country, where there is no need to manufacture as much coal as there used to be, or whether it be, you know, the GM plant closing in, in Flint, Michigan, there, there are places in this country where nobody has had the vision to shape an alternative plan and to... Amen, sister. God, educate, you're preaching to the choir. Right? Yep. To educate and yes. empower people in a new field, in in new trades. How can we, you know, best take what we're strongest at and m- interpret it in, in a new era? And I just want to know, like, when I think about Kentucky, right? It's coal country. Right, right. How did you think people in East Kentucky 
would welcome this idea of putting solar panels on top of mountains. <laughs> had, had, had I tried this five or six years ago, I, w- I would have been run out of the state on a rail. And now we have a wait list of out-of-work miners who just, Alyssa, want the opportunity to interview for these jobs. And so um, I think you hit on such a really important narrative here, and that is that people don't want to hand, up, hand out. They don't want to feel spoken down to. They just want a fighting chance in a changing economy. And this is how we can, I think, reinvigorate progressivism as something just beyond a worldview that works on the coast. You know, Kentucky is number one in the country for number of jobs that will be eliminated due to automation. And so um, those who believe in the morality only of the free market, the result is going to be a lot of people are left behind. And so government has a role to play unapologetically, not only in making sure that the safety net is in place for people who are left behind, but to make sure that we are, we are investing in people, that they have the skills necessary to p- compete in a changing economy. And to give you really one concrete example that is at at, at once both really alarming but also inspiring is that Kentucky is the third largest automotive manufacturer in the United States. We rank behind Detroit and Ohio. And um, we have a lot of people employed in this industry. But by 2023, just four years from now, Alyssa, uh, all of the automotive manufacturers will produce an electric motor that is the same price as the motor that's underneath the hood of a traditional car. The difference being a traditional motor has 300 individually milled parts assembled by dozens of people. An electric motor has 17 parts. And so the implications that has for workforce are really important. So not only do we need a governor of Kentucky, we need national leaders who understand in more than just a passive way that the economy is changing in ways that are profound. And we've got to have people who are thinking about this night and day because we can benefit from this immensely. It's a slingshot effect if we're preparing people for the opportunities of the 21st century. But Alyssa, we've got, we've got in my own state here, We've got political leadership that prefers yesterday to today and doesn't even think about tomorrow. And the way that manifests itself is that in my home state, the most reliable provider of Wi-Fi in rural Kentucky is is a damn McDonald's. And there's no better, there's no, and that that's not just Kentucky story. That is the story of an interior America. So understanding what FDR understood, that we've got to bring electricity to everywhere in this country. And he did it with the, the Rural Electrification Act. Many of us remember that these rural electrics sprang into being over a generation ago when our rural people were unable to get power from commercial power companies. So they organized their own systems, cooperatives, or in a couple of states, power districts. They brought rural America out of the darkness. Understanding what Republicans like Eisenhower got is that we, to develop our economy, we had to build the interstate, uh, interstate system. We have to have leaders who understand the digital infrastructure. People being connected to the Internet and, and high-quality broadband is absolutely the, the infrastructure challenge of our time. And, you know, I know this would surprise a lot of people on the coast, but most of us can't even get Netflix at home. And as my children tell me, that's a huge tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, and I think a lot of this goes back to what we were talking about before, which is education. We're not equipping our young people with the tools 
to actually be uh, able to be a part of the workforce once they get out of school. And I have a big issue with this this idea that we've stripped all of our our public schools of the arts programs, of uh, the music programs, of, Uh you know, of... So if I can just echo that, you know, we're doing doing town halls in every community in Kentucky. And I, I speak for 15 or 20 minutes about who I am and my vision. And then I take questions until there aren't any anymore. And what's remarkable is we get great turnout from these. We'll get 50 to 150 people, but we'll get 2,500 to 3,500 people watching them on Facebook Live. And Alyssa, what never fails to come up, particularly you know, in, in rural Kentucky, is people are seeing the school band program or the art program uh, eliminated or significantly reduced. And in a time and a place where we have got to have the liberal arts, We've got because it encourages creativity and collaboration. The very the very same part of the economy that by its very definition can't be exported to China or Mexico, we're pulling back our commitment to, to those areas. And it and it's um it's it's self-defeating. And we've really got to turn it because it's a statement of values. But also beyond all of that, what else brings the divide together? What else bridges the divide? Absolutely than the local theater. And I say this so much. We will pray in our own churches. We will eat in our own neighborhoods. What is the one thing in a small community that has divide that brings people together? It's the local theater. That's that's exactly right. And you think about, and it's and we can point to history where this worked. You know, it wasn't American military might that brought down the Russians. It was that it was the export of American culture, our movies, our music, our fashion, our our statement of values of, about who we were, and it was because it was inherently aspirational, and that's so powerful. Not just in in spreading what I think are the best of American values across the planet, but but also investing in our own people. I mean, the, the you know we had um, Alyssa Northern Kentucky in a in one of our poorest communities. Uh, there is a public school district called the Dayton School District, and, and I, this one I care a lot about because as the taxpayer watchdog, I caught the former superintendent there having stolen about half a million dollars from <gasps> some of the poorest kids in Kentucky. It's awful. He went to Federal Pen. It's all great. They've got a fantastic school superintendent now by named James Brewer, and they are teaching some of the poorest kids in Kentucky how to be chess masters, and. To me, that represents who we are at our best, right? That's because awesome. it's not about you know, it's not about opportunity being limited to the people who can afford to buy it. It's about making sure that the intellectual development of our kids reaches kids where they are. So, where you've got ten and eleven year old chess masters of, and, and these are kids of color. Uh, it's extraordinary, and I think there are so many good examples of what this country can and should be in the forgotten places. And, you know, and, and so an opportunity to have what we're doing here and, and sort of talking about what's going on in interior America, Alyssa, is, is uh, I think it's a huge compliment to you. And I just want you to know so many of us appreciate the opportunity. That's very kind. Thank you for saying that. I just I'm just very impressed. I'm impressed by the race that you're you're running. You're not taking any corporate PAC money. Um, not a dime. Uh, why was that so important to you? Because in Kentucky, the special interests have bought and sold governors for a hundred years, just like they have everywhere else. And not we're not running just to beat back this Tea Party governor, Matt Bevin, who's literally the worst ever. I mean, he's terrible. Hey, this is Kentucky Governor Matt Bevin. I'm here at Nativity Academy. 
I'm about to go in and meet the uh, members of the West Louisville Chess Club. Not something you necessarily would have thought of when you think of this section of town. Um, although that's a heck of a benefit to get to beat them. I, I fight for the opportunity to build. And what we're going to do is we're going to build a modern Kentucky where we bring uh, digital infrastructure to everybody, where we invest in renewable energy and create the jobs of the future, where we uh, unapologetically stand up for a woman's right to make her own health care decisions. And this is the kind of, well, listen, but it's important because ground zero in reproductive rights isn't in California or New York. It's in places like Kentucky. And we have a governor who, despite uh, a 40 year um, uh, a 40 year uh, system of case law from the Supreme Court that preserves a woman's right to make her own health care decisions, who is hell bent on making Kentucky the first state in the country to de facto ban abortion. And so we have to have leaders who say, listen, if you want to build a modern society, if you want to build a modern, um, a modern community, you have to recognize the f- full equality of women. And you can't claim the full equality of women when the government gets in their way of making health care decisions, period. Well, there's and, nothing that um, says big government more than the government telling me what I could do with my body. Exactly. Exactly right. So the government getting to decide the time and the place of family planning is is uh, ought to be antithetical to all of us who believe that that in a free society people should be allowed to make their own decisions. And Kentucky is you know we're off cycle. We we have a governor's race this year uh, that in a lot of ways is going to set the uh, set the agenda for. Um, what twenty and what twenty twenty and twenty twenty two look like, and so our challenge is to bring uh, um, a, a muscular brand of progressivism where we're totally committed to opportunity for all people to forgotten places like Kentucky. And if we can pull this off, not only can we make sure that everybody in this country gets uh, a, a fair shot at their version of the American dream, but we can get this country to back to being what it ought to be about, which is aspiration and community and the sense that uh, no matter who you are or what side of the tracks you come from or your gender or the color of your skin or who you choose to love, that you get your shot at the American dream. And and for everybody in this country, Kentucky is ground zero in 2019. And uh, when we win this election, I think it'll say a lot about the ability and the resiliency of those of us who believe that in a civil society, we owe a little something to each other uh, to restore the American dream. Our challenge today is to take this democratic system of ours, a system second to none, and make it better. That's the true genius of America, that America can change. Our union can be perfected. What we've already achieved gives us hope for what we can and must achieve tomorrow. If our parents and grandparents could toil and, and struggle for us, you know, if they could raise beams of steel to the sky, send a man to the moon, connect the world with the touch of a button, then, then surely we can keep on sacrificing and building for our own kids and grandkids, right? The other thing that I love about what you're doing right now that is also incredibly important to me, as you know, is that you've pledged that your cabinet would be made up of 50% women. Why, why is that so important to you? Because, my friend, it's 2019. And it's it's long overdue that 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 our governments at every level in this state reflect the diversity of gender and perspective and race 
even in places like Kentucky. And, you know, my commitment is my cabinet will be at least 50% female. But the, the issue we've got now is that, you know, our, our current governor, there's not a single female in our cabinet. And so um, as a guy who grew up in, in rural Kentucky who understands the importance of role models, uh, you know, Alyssa, you're of my generation. You'll remember Dan Rather, the, the CBS anchor, when we were kids. He was the first guy that I could look to as a kid who, who I thought sounded like me. This is the CBS Evening News. Dan Rather reporting. Both my parents worked with their back-in-the-hands, very hard-working people. Right. And they insisted, and we were all willing, my brother and sister and I, we started working very early. Right. And my father was smart enough to send me to work in brush-cutting crews, pipeline, and oil field rigs. And just by virtue of him sounding like me, I started to dream bigger dreams. And so what I want to make sure is that when we build a cabinet uh, that serves uh, the people of Kentucky and me as governor— that diverse kids can look at this and say, well, there's a, there's a leader who looks like me, sounds like me, and is blazing a path for me. And um, it's, really, it's really hard to speak to unless you've grown up in a place where there weren't many role models. But I am committed to forming a, a building a Kentucky where everybody has a role model. Well, I believe if you can't see it, you can't be it. Absolutely. We need those we need those role models. And I think right now in the Me Too generation, we're really getting a great education on uh, and maybe a change of thought on how uh, a woman chooses to lead because right. the, the leaders that, that I had to look up to were all men. So I feel right. as though often, you know, these, the women that are put in powerful positions in, you know, say a corporate office or a CEO of a, of a business feel like they have to embody um, sort of a masculine quality about them to be effective leaders. And I think the more we see more female representation in positions of power, the more we will learn that our strength is really in leading through service. Through service and example, and particularly, you know, you've been such a great leader in the Me Too movement. You know, we want to change the culture where too often sexual harassment's been tolerated. Uh, Elect women. Um, If a corporation wants to change a culture where there's been a sexual power power dynamic, put a woman in charge. Um, that, That will change things. And I think it's important that people lead from the front. So one of the things, you know, Alyssa, that I'm really proud of, and I did. It didn't happen on purpose. I, but I, I was asked, and I, I gave my, you know, my position is that I was the first uh, statewide elected official in Kentucky to endorse marriage equality, and I did it in a time and a place where, um, you know, twenty percent of the people in Kentucky agreed with me. But now, you know, now six, seven years later, we now live in a state that is majority pro marriage equality, and so giving people the opportunity to lead who think differently or reflect their unique set of circumstances only only results in making us all better. And that's why I'm committed to, to diversity. And I hate weasel words like tolerance. I mean, there's no, there's no bigger BS term in the world, in my view, than tolerance. What, what we should be striving for is inclusion. Because when we include folks at the table, um, better decisions are made. We, we better understand uh, others' perspectives. And we've got the ability to build the bridges that you and I are so passionate about between people who uh, fundamentally see things differently. This current fight between yesterday and today merely loses tomorrow. The future will be won, won by that dynamic infusion of new ideas and new leaders, rather than the stale scent of incrementalism and nostalgia. 
There is a better way. There is a higher road. Join us and change the game for our people. Thank you and God bless you. The importance of education is steeped in numbers. The cost of education per student per year, percentage of students graduating on time, percent of students dropping out, grade point average, standardized test scores ranked by district, student-to-teacher ratio, truancy rate, number of school shootings per year, income variances between those with and without a high school diploma. The number which really matters, however, is one. Making sure each individual student is able to access her schooling in a way which prepares her for the world ahead and a meaningful, fulfilling, and prosperous life. But education is not equal for us all. Despite the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which courts have said applies to students and their educational access, the ability to obtain an education and reap its benefits are not equally distributed. White kids, suburban kids, wealthy kids, they do fine. When a child is already relatively wealthy or otherwise privileged, they are able to realize the benefit of that wealth and privilege with an education that leads to continued prosperity. When a child is none of those things, all too often we fail to provide the same opportunities. And failure begets failure. Education is the single most important factor other than being white or wealthy, that is, in getting out of poverty. But failure to access that education rarely falls on the student. Instead, it falls on all of us. All too often, we create the societal problems and biases that make completing an education incredibly difficult for families already struggling, disproportionately affecting minority students. School, which should be a pipeline to prosperity, has instead become a pipeline to prison, like it was for Kira Walmart. Kira was a student in high school. She was in chemistry class. As a junior in Florida, she was already looking forward to graduation and what the future held for her. She was going to go to college and prepare for a career in STEM. Her high school instituted a zero-tolerance policy around rule-breaking, And being a student of color and a young woman in Florida comes with strong disadvantages. It's where nearly half of school arrests of girls target black students. So when Kira, as part of her science class, combined aluminum foil and toilet bowl cleaner, her path was already set. It harmlessly exploded, it created a pop noise, and whatever, the class carried on until she was arrested later that day, handcuffed in front of her classmates and hauled to a juvenile detention center where she was charged with two felonies. She was expelled from her school and sent to an alternative school for kids with discipline problems, where she did not obtain even the already lacking quality of education she was able to access previously. Because Kira's story caught the eye of a reporter, she was able to overcome most of the challenges laid in front of her. But even with the charges dismissed, she still had to check yes in the box indicating she had already previously been charged with a felony when applying to college. 
Even without a conviction, Kira's false record of a felony follows her to this day. And this happens over and over again, very nearly exclusively, of course, to minority students. We deprive students of their education while they are trying to access it. And if you think it doesn't matter, here's what Abraham Lincoln had to say about it. The philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. When we teach our minority and poor students that their access to education is worth less than those of white and wealthy students, we set the philosophy of the next generation. We teach the white students in power that minority students are criminal. And we teach minority students the same while taking away their best avenue out of poverty. These ideas fester and like a blister slowly filling over the years, they burst on the school boards and in the boardrooms, in Congress and in college. And the cycle continues. We need to end it. And we need to end it now, before my kids learn in school the worst lesson we teach, before yours do, before Kira's do. Milo, what do you think is the most important thing about being a kid? I think education and learning because um, if, like, you can't, learn and do math then you won't be a successful adult and what is your what's your favorite thing about school honestly i like math spelling reading pe and do you like playing with your friends yeah it's it's honestly my favorite thing to do at recess Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Sim Sarna and Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. It's edited by Josh Windish. Our production associate is Daniela Silva. Music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry. Sorry Not Sorry.